You gonna play for us? Sure, what do you want? Anything. <laughs> Classical. Huh? Are you serious? That is an introduction. Now, when I put it on the website, you can work magic in the website. You can move it to the front. I may do that. Well, this morning I hope to complete our introduction to the book of Romans. Next semester, the plan is to start with verse 18. You may have to do a little review, but that's okay, right? So uh, we're in verses 16 and 17 this morning, and the plan is to get through both of those, even though we've already been in 16 for two weeks now. And what I'm concentrating on are some of these major terms, because we're going to see them over and over and over. We don't want to have to define them every time we come to them. So start off with an understanding of the major terms of the book of Romans. They're all contained within this little passage. In fact, some of them we haven't even, we won't even look at until we get to some of them later on. But there's five of them that we've been looking at. We've looked at four of them. And I'd like to kind of focus on the one in verse 17. So in uh, the city of Rome, people were... Obviously, believers, and Paul was ministering to them, and I believe that he wrote this book to believers, to those that were genuine believers, not to unbelievers. Even though it deals with issues of salvation, it's written to believers to equip them to be able to understand the doctrine, primarily, the uh, doctrine of soteriology, which is doctrine of salvation, so that they may be equipped to be able to reach a lost world. So they'd have the understanding of the issues involved. And because it's inspired, it's designed for us as well in the same uh, way. So in the introduction, we've looked at the formal introduction, first seven verses, a personal introduction, verses 8 through 15. And now I call this the essence introduction because it gives us the essence of the book. And in a few words, we have a summary of everything else that's contained in the the letter, the book of Romans. We've already looked at verse 16. I've looked at it or kind of described it as the resource of God for deliverance. And I want to stress the deliverance idea, mainly to get away from a word that is so common to us that we kind of have sometimes misconceptions as to its meaning, its actual biblical meaning. So if you think of it as deliverance in a general way, and depending on the context, in fact, I'll review this in a moment here, the word is used in slightly different ways. So resource for deliverance, we saw his resolve from a confidence in the gospel. Phrases it in the negative. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he's communicating. He has great confidence in the gospel. And from that, he wants to share a little bit about that in these first two verses. And 
as their introductory to the rest of the book as well. And the reason for that confidence is the power that is inherent in the gospel. We focused on that last week. It's supernatural power. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to pressure. We don't have to say special words. We do the best that we can in presenting the gospel, trying to be as accurate as we can. And the Holy Spirit will take that and use that and instill power in that in converting a human heart. So it's not us. It's God's power that converts. So the gospel, there's power. And then the result of that is for salvation. And that's a common New Testament word. We looked at it last week, looked at some details on it. For salvation, that's the essence of it. So he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God with the purpose of salvation. Now, in this context, I think he's using it in somewhat of a kind of a general sense. In other words, it probably looks at all of the three theological aspects of salvation. Because that's what the book will deal with. The book is going to deal with all of the aspects of salvation. Now, last time we did look at also the the term, or two terms, the noun, soteria, 45 times in, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, 106 times as a verb, sozo, S-O-Z-O, 106 times in the New Testament. So it's fairly frequent. And we said that the basic meaning comes from the everyday usage and the idea of just simply a salvation or a deliverance from physical danger. And that is especially the way that the word is used, the equivalent word in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Just deliverance from any physical or even emotional or even a cultural danger, whatever the danger may be. That's its everyday usage. Now, the New Testament and the Old Testament introduces us to the use of that same term, or the noun and the verb, in a theological sense. So it takes that word, or those words, and injects theological or spiritual meaning. And in the case of the theological usage, a deliverance... So the term salvation is used in a theological sense. And what uh, all theological terms, I think, come from the everyday usage of a word. And then the writers of Scripture, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, add theological meaning to it. In other words, in this case, instead of physical danger, it's deliverance from uh, the ultimate of dangers, which is spiritual danger. And I mentioned last time, this is just a quick review, there's a past tense sense. And here's where we kind of need to remember to check every context to make sure how the word is used. Don't assume, as many do, that when you see the word salvation, it always has that past tense idea. The book of Romans is going to deal in some detail, with that past tense sense. In other words, the initial trust in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it's called justification. That's the theological word. In fact, we're going to look at that word uh, in verse 17. So that's the past tense sense, where you're delivered from the penalty of sin once for all 
the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the way the word is used in every context. In fact, I did make a count last week. I couldn't remember exactly. But they're almost evenly balanced between a past tense sense in terms of the number of passages. Some of them are a little unclear, but they're almost equally about 19 times each is what I counted where it's used in another sense that I'll get to in a moment here. There is also a future sense. In fact, to illustrate it from one passage, turn to 1 Peter. I don't have this on the slide, but turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's take a look at a couple of verses there. Because Peter, he's going to use the word in all three senses in one chapter. And you can tell from the context, there's little clues in there that kind of indicate that. But let me give you this quick review, and then we'll get into First Peter. So there's a past tense sense, and there's a future tense sense. In other words, a salvation or a deliverance from even this world, you might even say. A deliverance from uh, these sinful bodies. We will be removed from these sinful bodies those of us that have experienced the past tense sense. In other words, this is only for those that have that initial salvation. Make sense? And that's a salvation from the very presence of sin. Never to be tempted again, never to experience sin again, never to have even contact with it. Now, obviously, this is after we go to be with the Lord. And this is after the rapture, if we're alive when the rapture takes place. So if there's a past tense, future tense, then you would expect a present tense sense. A theological word that we use is sanctification. Now there's a different word that the New Testament uses when it uses sanctification. Different word for glorification, different word for justification. But these are theological terms that capture the idea of salvation in these different senses. So the present tense sense means that this is something that goes on day by day as we grow in Christ. We need to continually trust in him to deliver us from those temptations, from those things that we encounter that try to trip us up as believers. So that's a salvation from the power of sin. And this usage, I tried to count them and try to make a judgment on all of them. There's, a, there's about 19 of them. And there's about 19 of the either the noun or the verb of the past tense sense. So don't assume, just because the word salvation is there, that it always means the same thing. And that's true of any word. You need to see, and we do this. I mean, we use words differently all the time. So you need to use the context to determine what you intend to communicate. So also with theological terms. Now notice in 1 Peter, and I'll have... Someone read, who wants to read? Now, it doesn't use the term in verse verse 3. Somebody read verse 3 and 4. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Linda, and who? somebody get 5, who wants 5? Jenny get 5, and then somebody look at, Connie, look at verse 9. But start 3 and 4. Praise the God and Father of Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, given us a new birth through the resurrection Christ and into an inheritance that is his own. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. Notice the broadness of that whole passage there. 
But he doesn't use the word salvation, but he uses a, a kind of an equivalent idea there. What is the little word there? Born again. This is what Jesus introduced. In other words, that initial birth, looking at that initial stage of salvation from the very penalty of sin. That happens once for a believer, for those that trust Jesus Christ. Now, the whole unbelieving world has never experienced this. In other words, this is just those of us that have experienced that transformation. And then in verse 5, what sense is it used there? Why don't you read that one, Jenny? Read it loud. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. Okay. It's pretty clear, isn't it? What sense? Pardon me? Future. It's ready to be revealed in the future, in the last time. In other words, it'll be made visible, it'll be made plain, it'll be revealed in the future. Now, that'll happen at the second coming and or rapture. And if you die before that, then immediately you will go to be with the Lord and into glorification. That's the future sense. So this salvation and the word soteria is right there. So it's not used in that past tense sense. It's used in that future tense sense. Now, you can probably guess what it's used in uh, verse 9 because I've kind of given it away here. In verse 9, who's got it? Connie? Receiving the faith of salvation. And that little phrase, salvation of your souls, if you trace it through First Peter, if you trace it through James, you'll realize it's used oftentimes in this ongoing sense. And I think it's used that way in this context. In other words, there's a sense where your souls are continually protected or saved as you trust. In other words, as you trust God in the midst of a temptation, then you have this salvation available, and it's from the power of sin. Okay? So I didn't give you those verses, but there's there's lots of verses as well besides that one. There's some troubling passages. For example, they're not troubling at all. They're troubling to those people that don't see that the term is used in different ways. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you have to do some effort. Now, does it mean that salvation is by works? Absolutely not. The salvation in the past sense, uh, we're going to get into that today in that past tense sense, is a salvation that is based on faith and faith alone apart from works. There's many passages. The whole Gospel of John is just by believing in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, all these passages. So you don't have a contradiction here. What you're doing, what you're seeing here, is the writer is using the word in a slightly different way. So when it says, work out your salvation... It does take effort. It does take involvement. It does take uh, works in order to be protected from sin in the present tense sense. Can you say that it's cooperation? Yes, it takes cooperation. Now, it's the Spirit working, but uh, He's not forcing Himself on us. In other words, He doesn't force us to do certain things. It takes not only act of the will, but it takes some spiritual growth as well, and effort in that. Obedience, yes. And that's the Christian walk. It takes obedience. In that sense, it's harder for Christian holiness. Much more has been revealed about our sinfulness. Sinfulness, yeah. Which is always there. Exactly. And then the rest... And you're speaking for all of us, not just yourself, right? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) All right. 
quick question on the, actually for the sanctification. There'd be a little confusion. Doesn't sanctification also have the word sanctification kind of being set apart? Yes. It's a different word. Okay. But the theological concept, in other words, a salvation from this ongoing sense, we also call that sanctification. But there's confusion, because I'm having a discussion once, and somebody says, oh no, sanctification is only being set apart, and the church uses it completely wrong all the time. You know? Well, that's the case too, but... <laughs> okay. so they do that. Okay. Yeah. Because they mix them all up. But sanctification is that ongoing Christian walk that we experience. The book of Romans is going to devote a whole section to it as well. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification, 6 through 8. So, that's where we looked off, looked at last week with some others. Since you're in 1 Peter, you're still there, right? Notice verse 10. Somebody read it. Who's got it? Now, I think in verse 10... Now he's using it in this overall broad sense that would include past, present, and future. The prophets desired to know the whole ramifications, and it wasn't clear to them. So in verse 10, and the word soteria is there as well, I think he's using it in a broad sense to include all three. I think that's the way he's using it in Romans 116, in this overall broad sense that would include past, present, and future. And then in the book, he's going to expand and break them out, and you'll have to look at the context to see how he's using it. And the context is pretty clear, because he's very logical in his progression and movement in the book of Romans. So, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Another key biblical word. Now, I'm not going to take too much time on this one, but this is another word that's going to be a theme of the book of Romans as well. The idea of we enter in by faith. We enter into this salvation by faith, and faith alone to everyone who believes. It doesn't say who believes and is baptized. To him who believes and goes forward in a meeting. He who believes and signs a card. He who believes and prays a certain prayer. It doesn't say he who believes and does certain things, doesn't do some certain works, joins certain churches, goes to church often. He who does all these things. Salvation on the initial phase is by faith and faith alone, those that believe. And that's the theme of the Gospel of John as well. In fact, John is probably the only book of the Bible that probably is written to an unbelieving audience. So let's take a look at faith. Pistuo is the Greek word, simply to believe something. In other words, to settle your thoughts and believe something that it's true. And when you trust that Jesus did everything necessary, remember we talked about the gospel. There's what kind of news first? The bad news, we need to come to an agreement, in fact, believe, come to an agreement with God that we are lost, that we are sinful, we're separated from him, we're condemned. Book of Romans is going to outline all of these things. That's the bad news. And if we don't believe the bad news, then uh, we probably don't have a sense of need 
to believe the good news, and the good news is that Jesus did everything that we need for salvation, for all senses of salvation, but it must begin with the initial stage, the past tense sense. In other words, for those of you that have already believed, it's in the past tense. For the unbeliever out there, they still need to look forward to that. So that's what it means to believe or to have faith, simply. Another question. Often, again, people associate to be saved, you've got to repent and believe. Associate, repent. That's why I've stressed that. Yeah. And when the word is used, it's basically turn your thoughts. In other words, turn around 180 degrees is the idea of repent. In other words, I'm over here at this point, and I think I'm okay. I think everything's fine. Who needs Christ? Who needs this salvation that we're talking about? And we need to reorient our thinking and now put our trust in what Jesus has done for us already. So in some ways they are related, but it's not put, in other words, you have the more frequent aspect of just simply believing. And it's assumed that, you know, you're believing with full knowledge. Does that make sense? Okay. So pistuo is the believe. Today, there's a tendency to do exactly what uh, Terry is talking about here, a tendency to add something to it. It can't be that simple. It can't be just simply trusting what Jesus did. It can't be that he did everything. I must have to do something and add something, baptism or something, some special prayer or repent. There's a tendency to add, and there's this common little phrase that I don't think is biblical. The first part is, salvation is by faith alone. Stop there. That's the biblical idea. At least I I think in terms of understanding Scripture. Salvation is by faith alone, but... Uh-oh. <laughs> but saving faith is not alone. I don't think that's biblical. It's contradictory, actually. It's saying, well, there must be something other than faith alone. Okay. It's saying that saving faith has something attached to it. Now, this is very common. Very common. Jenny. comes after salvation. Yes. And like baptism, they come after. That's right. Yeah, but we try to bring them close together, okay? So it's a simple trust that Christ accomplished all that we need for salvation. And just simply putting our faith and trust on it. Not trusting anything in myself anymore. In other words, I'm not trusting the number of times I go to church. I'm not trusting being faithful. I'm not trusting being obedient. Faith alone. And at that moment, a heart is transformed. And now we have the other aspect where works are only for sanctification. In other words, for growing. If somebody were tr- would trust in Jesus Christ, in fact, the thief on the cross... The thief on the cross died minutes after he received the promise that Jesus gave to him. Remember, one of the thieves, one of them uh, remained condemned, but one of them was saved on the cross. Jesus says, today you will what? Be with me in paradise. He was saved. He did nothing. He was saved because he trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Make sense? And that's true of anyone. There are some who take up James. It's talking about sanctification. In other words, and we're going to talk a little bit about this ongoing faith as well. In other words, faith doesn't end the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. 
We need to continually trust in him day by day. And that's the faith that he's talking about. He's talking about two different kinds of justification. Just like there's the three kinds of salvation, there's two kinds of justifications as well. And the context of James is the sanctification aspect of it. We're not going to get off on that because we don't have time. Linda? I think of it as a pursuit of holiness. Pursuit. Yep. Yeah. It is a pursuit, and it involves our volition. Yep. Right. A person can be saved and not grow at all. Thief on the cross. And others in the New Testament, there's probably examples of them as well. And we're going to see them in heaven. There's going to be a lot of people that are preachers doing lots of work and trusting in that for their salvation. They're not going to make it, even if they preach a lifetime. So we're like, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So that's, it has to be... That's biblical. Everything, all of your works will burn up unless they're done through faith. Yes, Absolutely. So it's almost like the motive of your work is more important. Absolutely. Yep. Connie? Um, Absolutely. 12. 12-2, where it says That's ongoing. Yep. And we've already gone through the slide. Bad news, good news, faith alone. And in verse 16, I added it to the slide. We've already looked up all of those verses. So... That's the result of deliverance. Those are the, the, oh, the recipients of inclusiveness. Let's look at them. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's regardless. Now, this is a not so much a change, but a change in emphasis, you might say, from Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, God concentrated on Israel, but he intended that Israel be his instrument to reach the Gentiles. They failed in large measure. Now, there's here, you know, here and there, there are Gentiles that come to faith in God and what God promised concerning a future Messiah. So there's a few Gentiles that believe in the Old Testament, but the emphasis is Israel. And they are a priority. And this verse makes them a priority. They are the chosen people of God. God has not abandoned them. We're going to see that in the book of Romans. That's chapters 9 through 11. Now, there's a partial hardening, is what those chapters tell us, in the hearts of the Jewish people. But the gospel is for those, and salvation is for the Jew first. And also to the Greek. And I was using the Greek here, and it's, Kind of a common usage in the first century. If you refer to the Greeks, you're referring to... Uh, but even broader, it is kind of another phrase that was equivalent to uh, uh, Gentiles. Gentiles. Everybody else. Exactly. Everybody else. Okay. So there is a priority, a priority biblically. It's the children of Israel that God created. In other words... He initially created the nation from Abraham. And he made all of the Abrahamic covenant promises to Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant from that time on has set all of the parameters for all the rest of world history. And if you study it in detail, you will be able to verify that world history fits within what God promised to Abraham. And it's not worked out completely yet. The Abrahamic covenant Covenant still has a future complete fulfillment. But the center of God's dealings is the nation of Israel. Now, we think everything's about us. 
believers in this age, at this time, you need to go back Israel. So he created them as a nation. Uh, somebody look up Exodus 19. Who wants to read that one? Bob, why don't you get that one? Salvation of Israel. The major event of the Old Testament is that salvation experience for Israel. That's the Exodus. Almost a whole book devoted to it. Book of Exodus. And notice what it says in 19, 5 and 6. Got it, Bob? This is the purpose of Israel. This is why God saved Israel is for this purpose. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. This is after salvation, by the way. Keep going. Then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay, their purpose is to be what? Kingdom of priests, mediators between God and the rest of the world. Mediators between God and mankind in general. Mediators between God and the Greeks, or you might say the Gentiles. That's their purpose. Now they failed, and God dealt with them, destroyed them as a nation, but the promises are not lost. That's what Romans is going to tell us, as well as other passages in the New Testament. But they were to reach Gentiles. So the priority of Israel, we have that with Jesus himself. Somebody look up John 4.22. Real quick. We've got it. Jenny, go ahead. Somebody else look up John 10.16. And it would be easy to find. Jeremy, you got John 10.16? That's what you get for scratching your eyes there. <laughs> Romans 3.22. Wants to do that one? Connie, got that one? Matthew 28, 19 and 20? Ellen, okay. John 4, 22. This is Jesus. Sorry. Jesus, go ahead. You worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. In other words, it's supposed to come out from the Jews. And who is he talking to in John 4? Samaritan woman. An outcast. Half-breed. John 10, 16. Jeremy. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock. Now, who is he talking to, first of all? Who is he talking to? Jews. And he's telling them, disciples, basically, Jewish disciples. He's telling them what? There's other sheep that he's going to bring in. Now, it's not clear to them, but he's referring to people that are not Jewish. That he's going to incorporate. But the priority is the Jewish people. And remember, uh, when he sent them out on a missionary journey, he said, go to the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. That's a priority. Uh, Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God just Okay, now there's no distinction. In other words, it's broadened. And then the, Ma- the Matthew 28, that's the Great Commission. In fact, we don't even need to read that. But it's... The message that we have, you, go ahead, Del, you got it. <laughs> go, therefore, and make disciples of nations, baptizing the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything to be And that's our great commission. That's what we as a body, as a church, have been commissioned to do, we as individuals. It's not any different than what God gave Israel, but it's for a new era, new time frame, and a new emphasis, and now the majority of the church is Gentile. 
but God hasn't left Israel out. We'll see that later on. So chapter 17, let's look at it. It's the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the essence of the introduction here. Resource of God for deliverance is the gospel. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. First part of that, it's a revelation of righteousness. So in the time that we have left, let's look quickly at the word righteousness. First of all, for, it kind of parallels the for in verse 16, referring back to the gospel and Paul's eagerness to preach it. And we have 16, and then in 17, for it is the righteousness of God. What is this word righteousness? This is the key word of the whole book. The others occur in the book of Romans. This one occurs more frequently than any other theological term in the whole book. And I'm going to give you some numbers in a minute here. What is this righteousness? We need to understand that. So what does God say about righteousness or righteous? Let's look at that. First of all, here's the, here's the different words. It'll occur in a noun form, dikaios asune, 36 times in Romans, over 100 times in the in the New Testament, 36 times in Romans, or about a, about, about 100 times, I can't remember exactly. Uh, another form, dikaios, seven times in the book of Romans. Dikaio, the verb form, transliteration is the same as dikaios there, the transliteration there, except at the end you have two O's, a, a short O and a long O. Ah, an O sound. Jenny? No. It's a different different uh, word group. There's a specific word relating to deacon that's different. Totally different. These are very, very important. It is used very often. Uh, the series of these, or the word group, is used very often in the New Testament. And we need to understand them. So let's take a look at that. First of all, it's a starting point is God himself. It's an attribute of God. And there's lots of passages that refer to God himself. In fact, I'll have you just jot these down because we're not going to have time to read them. As an attribute, it's God in his rightness, in his character, rightness of character and actions. In other words, everything that God does is right, is absolutely right, if you can think of it in that sense. And in fact, he is the standard for everything else. That's what righteousness means, as an attribute of God. So it comes from him. It's his, the essence of his character. Holiness is another idea related to it. In other words, everything that God does is different from you and I. That's holiness. And everything that he is and everything that he does is right and correct and just. And everything apart from him is unrighteous. And what are we? Now, these are just a few passages uh, Revelation 16.5, Revelation 16.7, where God is praised for his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9.9 is another one. And there are several others as well. These are probably the clearest ones where it identifies God as the one that is righteous. And man is what? Unrighteous. And we'll get to that's 3.10. You got it memorized. Okay. Yeah, 3.10 in the book of Romans, this is his great conclusion. There is none righteous. And he's kind of gone through the categories of humanity. He deals with Gentiles first, comes to the conclusion they're all sinners. Goes through all of the Jews, comes to the conclusion they're all sinners. 
And then his great conclusion in chapter 3, 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So everything about us is off what is right. We don't meet the standard. We don't meet the perfect standard. We fall, we fall short. That's the meaning of sin. The idea of sin is falling short of a righteous standard, falling short of God. And also in 118, the next verse, I think it's, it talks about us. In fact, we probably ought to read 118. You got it, Connie? The next verse after 17. The wrath of God is the justice of men. That's man. That's us. And the wrath of God is revealed. He starts off telling us the truth here. What did you say, Con? Who suppressed the truth. Who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's us. That's our tendency. That's who we are. We lack a standing. We have no standing before God, and the wrath of God awaits us. That's the bad news. He's going to start off with the bad news. He's going to expand it, argue it, convince us of it, until we agree and say, okay, I agree. What's the solution? And then in the middle of chapter 3, he's going to give us the solution, the good news. And he's also going to give us how to receive it by faith and faith alone. So verse 29, we have it occurring again. So it occurs very frequently in the book of Romans. You can trace it through. Uh, So that's the word. And again, in man, to have righteousness is to have a right standing before God. That's salvation. That's justification. In fact, the word dikaios is sometimes translated justification or just in the New Testament. It's related to the same word group. In fact, let's read 3.21 and 22. Who wants to look at them? We've read them before, but it's good to read them again because who's got it? Okay, I'll do it. But now, apart from the law, in other words, the Jew wanted to obey the law, and he was commanded to. And he thought that if he obeyed the law, he would receive a right standing before God. But now, apart from the law, the law is for Israel. The righteousness of God, in other words, that that comes from God, that that is of him, the righteousness that is sourced from God, (laughs) Even the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, in other words, that righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, trusting in him, faith in him, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, in other words, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, for those who believe, that's how you enter into it, for all have sinned, in other words, we're all unrighteous, all have sinned, we've fallen short of that standard, Short of the glory of God, in other words, his glorious righteousness. 24, being justified. There's dikaio. Same word group. Translated, you could even translate it being made righteous or being given a right standing before God. Or another word that we use in English is justified. It's the same, same Greek word. Same Greek word group, it's the verb. Being justified as a gift. You earn a gift. You do anything for a gift. No. By his grace. Do we deserve it? No. By his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he paid the price. He redeemed us. He purchased us on the cross. 
shed his blood, it cost him, whom God displayed publicly. We've looked at this before. God displayed publicly, that's the cross. In his blood, dying on a cross, publicly a propitiation in his blood. Again, the emphasis through faith, faith alone, not faith in baptism, not faith in repentance. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, there's the attribute, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. In other words, all of world history has been anticipating and waiting for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Got it? So that's how we enter into a right standing, and you can copy the other verses there, 519, 2 Corinthians 521, in fact, somebody has quoted that one before, and in Romans, it's only by imputation. That's another theological word we'll look at when we get there. But the idea is it's put to our credit, to your bank account. You didn't deserve it. That's grace. You just received it. That's faith. You just believed it and accepted it. And now it's put in your bank account. And it can't be taken away. No one can take it away. You can't even give it up yourself. It's secure. That's the book of Romans. And another verse is Philippians 3.9. We'll look at all of that when we get through the book of Romans. Now, there's a growing in righteousness. So the word is used in a different context in chapter 6. 13, 16, 18 through 20, and in other passages as well. This is the growing aspect. This is the sanctification aspect of righteousness. We are declared righteous, and it's put to our credit the moment we trust, but we're not made righteous. A huge distinction. We're not made righteous. We're declared righteous. And before God, he looks at Jesus Christ, sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it's in our bank. It's in our credit. And that's how he views us. Now... We want to grow in righteousness. In other words, we want to conform more and more to the standard. That's what chapter 6, six through 8 is going to give us the principles for conforming to the standard that God has set. We'll never reach it in this lifetime, but we keep growing and we become more Christ-like. That's the whole idea. See that? That's what chapter 6 through 8 is going to teach us, those principles. Got it? So that's Christian living, where now we become more and more like Christ. That's the transformation of Romans 12, 1 and 2 there. Be transformed. That's a gradual process. That takes time. We don't get there, we don't get to maturity all at once. In fact, we never reach the standard. When we are glorified, we come the closest we'll ever come in all of eternity. So that's righteousness. Linda. Are you on the righteousness part? Not yet, no. Because, yeah. I haven't got there yet. Oh. The requirement, we've already said much about it. For, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Okay. Could I just. Sure. Okay, I studied this, what Glenn said. The, shall it, the, by faith, out of faith, could do it, uh, righteous or will live? And he also said, you get the righteous, like you can really live once you've been saved. You really live. And at six is how, yeah. I mean, how to really live. Um, yeah, living it out is the last part right, of the verse. And then you, 
Well, yeah. Not along the way. Everybody understand that? It's crystal clear, I, right? I didn't get it either. He said it. It was supposed to Well, from faith, revealed from faith to faith. In other words, from your faith back to your faith, this righteousness comes. I think that's the idea here. In other words, you believe, and that righteousness is credited to that faith. In other words, that faith now becomes that declaration of righteousness. And then it quotes, we have a report from the Old Testament. It is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, once you have reached that faith, now you can live it out, and now you're going to have a power. And this isn't anything new. This is something even Old Testament believers could experience. Linda, you're you're still... Okay, you've got the righteous out of faith will live. Yes. Most people out of faith, they live. But he was saying the righteous, the out of faith is the righteous, which allows you to live. Exactly. Yeah. It's the... The righteousness that God gives you to you, that will enable you to be able to to live and to grow into righteousness. Okay. Yeah, it's not real simple, but this comes out of the Old Testament. It's a quote from Habakkuk, and it's a quote that uh, Old Testament believers could have known about. So it's not new, this idea of trusting God for your ongoing <clears throat> sanctification or growing in righteousness or growing in salvation. Jenny. You could even, if I can expand it, from the faith that we trust in Him, it comes back to that faith, to faith. It comes back to us from God as righteousness. He credits us. That's the idea of imputation that He'll expand later. So in other words, we trust in Him, and the moment we trust in Him, He credits us with righteousness. To our, to that faith that we put in Him. It's like He changes that faith into righteousness. Yeah. By faith you're made righteous. Yes. And then you can. Yes. And then, as it's written, He's expanding that, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now we have the power available to be able to live to try to meet that standard. Okay? Got it? It's not easy. Paul's not real easy here. But the rest of the book of Romans is going to expand upon this. So he's got, he's got a whole book to kind of explain what he's saying. Closing thought. Faith alone is key to deliverance from penalty of sin and also from the power of sin. Who wants to close first? Bob. Father, we are so blessed to hear your word, to know you and the power of the salvation. And we are grateful that we can walk today in that power. And you have given us your rights. You have given us your life. And so we ask your leading, your guiding, your direction. We might bring a blessing as we go. Amen.